0: Lord, as we come to this text, we acknowledge that we need for you to speak to us. And so we ask that you would open up, Lord, the, the, the ears and the eyes of our hearts, that we might encounter you, Jesus, that we might hear in a fresh way what you have to say to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We've been going through the gospel of John in this series, Encounters, and we've been looking at different people that encounter Jesus and really what happens when they encounter Jesus. And today's text is unusual in two ways. Number one, some of you have already seen that uh, you have brackets around this text or it's in fine print or you see a footnote that says something like the majority of New Testament scholars don't think John wrote this. And, and it also tells us that the majority, if you research it, and I'm not going to bore you with the details we could spend all morning on, on, on this kind of stuff, but the other thing that's interesting is the majority of scholars say, this is an authentic account. This is basically an eyewitness account that John didn't write. Or John maybe wrote it and added it after he wrote it. Have you ever written something? You're like, you know what, I should have I added that, and you put it in. So, um, so it's a really unique text in that way. Um, it's also unique in that uh, we've been looking at, people encountering Jesus, but today we actually have two different parties encountering Jesus, okay? So that's kind of make it, make it a little different. Um, the context is uh, that, that of the temple. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. You have a little picture of the second temple uh, uh, that Jesus would have come to, So the temple during that time uh, would have been a large space, a very large space. And the place that we know that Jesus would have gone to is called the Court of the Gentiles, which was this large kind of outer court. And in order to get a feel for what this was like, we need to understand that this was a public space. Uh, But it wasn't just a public space. It was an emotionally charged place. Uh, Maybe the the closest example we have would be kind of like going to the Capitol building, but also like being on Twitter. Okay, because it's a place in which it's it's symbolic of the very identity of the Jewish people and their heritage, but it's also a place where there's lots of ideas circulating, kind of like Speakers' Corner in London. Um, so it's not just a religious building; it is actually a very charged public space where public opinion is formed, and it's here that Jesus, as was his custom, comes first thing in the morning. So we had this pattern: we'd get up. He'd come first thing to the temple, and he began teaching. And there were crowds that were kind of already developing, and this was a constant pattern that was going on. Uh, and, And we read then, but this day was going to be different because there were some people that were planning on doing something on this day. As we heard, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. That means like front and center, Okay. Right there in front of all the crowds, drag this woman in. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And then it lets us know they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. So I like to kind of go through the five W's with all of my, you know, double PhDs. Let's kind of look at them. Who? W. Who? First one, a group of scribes and Pharisees that don't like Jesus. This is a group that is against Jesus, okay? What? Well, they march this woman who's disheveled, possibly half-dressed, and they put her right in front of this crowd before Jesus, okay? When? (coughs) We already mentioned that. First thing in the morning, as soon as the crowd gathers, they timed it perfectly. Talk about ruining your day. Some of you think, I had a hard start. Well, Jesus is going to have a hard start to his day right here, right? Where, I already mentioned the court of Gentiles, it's a heightened public space, okay? And why? They want to discredit Jesus. In other words, this is a publicity stunt, okay? It's a publicity stunt that draws off of people's moral indignation in order to discredit Jesus. They want to silence Jesus. Now, in case you're wondering if this is kind of a unique thing, um, to have a, a group come together um, and form a kind of like a posse, a gang, um, a mob, and and then challenge somebody based on some kind of moral indignation to answer a question, we, we just simply need to look at our culture. This is happening all around us, right? A posse, a gang, a herd, a group gets filled with moral indignation, they band together, then they turn on a target, and they want to know their view on X, Y, and Z. Are you for it, or are you against it? Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've experienced it in the office, at your work. Maybe you experienced it online, where it happens all the time, where somebody throws the bait out there. What do, you, what do you think about this? And you know everybody in your family, your grandma, everybody is a part of this bizarre conversation on something that you probably, you have an opinion, you accidentally mentioned it, you know, And now the herd is turned on you, and you can see the gang developing, the mob coming for you. It's not a comfortable thing, and it's happening all the time in our culture. So they need to know an answer, and they need to know it now, because if they don't get the answer they want, they are going to punish Jesus publicly. His reputation will be irreparably damaged. He will be discredited. In short, this group has showed up to cancel Jesus. That's what they're after. Let's look closely at how they set their trap, and it tells us right away that the scribes and Pharisees brought this woman who'd been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to her teacher, "This woman has been caught in the act." That's really important. that King James is taken in adultery, okay? So caught in the act. Uh, this is important because the law of Moses—you know—we're very familiar with the law of Moses being very rigorous and strict. But one of the things we don't see is that actually when it comes to the bar of accusation, it is far more generous uh, than our own laws. You know, there's no such thing as circumstantial evidence in the law of Moses. Uh, You have to have two witnesses. Those witnesses have to be completely aligned. There's actually a story of, uh, of a woman named Susanna who was reported to have done something underneath a tree that was illegal. They, they brought her before the law courts and then during the cross-examination of the witnesses, uh, they found out that they couldn't agree on the size of the leaves and it was thrown out. So it's an extremely high bar, okay? And, and the fact of the matter is we know historically that this never happened. Like, it was extremely rare to have somebody actually pass through all of the kind of high criteria and actually have the, the be punished. So adultery was rampant during this time, but it's never being prosecuted. So that's part of their plan. They want to to put Jesus into this position where he is going to be spun as this completely um, hardened kind of person. Um, So that's why it's so important that she's caught in the act. Now, notice that they are not asking Jesus if she's guilty. That's really important to notice. They are asking Jesus about the penalty, okay? And, and it's a great, it is a, an absolutely great uh, trap. I mean, they've really got a great trap going here. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. You know, this is, this is, we see this happening in other places in the gospels. You know, do we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Any way Jesus goes down that road is not going to go well. Right, and this is kind of similar, by the way, because if Jesus says, "Yeah, let's kill her," now he's going to have to deal with the Roman authorities, because you couldn't actually have somebody that wasn't somehow connected to Rome uh, involved in capital punishment. But if he dismisses it, then he's going to have his only his other problem. So this is this one of these kind of like, <laughs> you can't win. You know, um, Saint Augustine says, "If he shall approve her being stoned, he will not show his gentleness." If he consents to let her go, he will not keep his righteousness. So what's he going to do? Is he going to trample on the law or is he going to trample on this woman? If he tramples on the law of Moses, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. There's no way that Moses, the great founder of the people of Israel, remember, they're in the temple. They're at the very center of the identity of the people of Israel. Moses, the founder of the people of Israel, that Jesus would go against him? would be unthinkable, Jesus would be a lawless person, and by the way, Jesus would be possibly drug into court himself, okay? But if he tramples on this woman, okay, if he says, you know what? Yeah, this, kill her. we her, sorry, we got to kill her. Um, you know, why were so many people crowding around Jesus? Why did Jesus grab the crowd that's there? It's because he was saying things about grace and mercy and forgiveness that people were like, I never heard this before. This is shocking. I never heard this kind of gentleness, kindness, forgiveness, mercy. And so if he says, yeah, got to kill the woman, too bad. You know, think about it, you know, come to me, all you who are, who are labor and, and heavy burdened, and I will execute you. Not going to work, right? It's going it's to, okay, it doesn't, it doesn't kind of work. So Jesus is at the, this, this incredibly difficult situation. And by the way, these, these men with their incredibly devilish scheme, have actually stumbled upon a perennial problem that all societies and religions face. And that's this. If you have compassion, you're in danger of relativizing morality. And if you have absolute morality, you can crush people. How do you deal with this situation? And so they they think to themselves, we've got him. We've got him. We finally got him. But they don't got him because they're not dealing with just anybody. They're not dealing with just a mere mortal. They're dealing with the God-man. And so then it tells us something that is one of the most amazing things. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And I have to tell you, there has been more speculation over what in the world Jesus is doing at this time than just about anything else in the Bible. What in the world is he doing? Like, can you imagine the drama? They drag this woman in. They put her there. This is extremely dramatic. Everybody's, and they're, what do we do, Jesus? And Jesus is like, all right. (laughs) And they're like, what is he doing? He's doodling in the dirt. So, of course, we've got to find out why in the world. What is he writing? What is he writing? Well, One theory is maybe he's writing out their sins. Maybe he's writing a big enough for them to see, you know, liar, you know, mean to your wife. Maybe he's doing that so they can see it. You know, God wrote the law with his finger. So maybe Jesus is writing out the law and showing that he's divine. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm actually God. I I wrote the law that you're talking about. There's lots of speculation um, and we could stay here all day. Uh, Of course, I just want to let you know, in my vast wisdom and education, I have finally cracked the code, and for the first time, I'm going to reveal to you what he wrote. (laughs) Some people like to look at it symbolically. You know, why did he bow down? Like, what is he doing, doing, you know... Uh, messing with the dirt, you know, and they think it's some kind of metaphor for him being the creator. Some people look at it symbolically and they say he's stooping down just like he did in the incarnation and reaching into our muck and dirtiness. Look, these are all truths, but focusing on what he wrote or reading this as some kind of heavy symbolism, I think just misses something we see Jesus doing over and over again in the gospels. You know, when Jesus is uh, in a storm his disciples are panicking. They're going crazy. It's a Jesus, it's an emergency. What are you going to do? And he's like, oh, oh. and they're like, what's he doing? He's sleeping. Why is he sleeping? Jesus walks through the gospels and he is completely unflappable. He's completely not messed up by the circumstances that come rushing at him. And he certainly doesn't play to the crowd. He is not sitting there trying to win a popularity contest. So, what I love about this is when Jesus goes down and and writes with his finger whether whether we will never know what he wrote, we are never going to you know read some kind of symbolic action and really know for sure because it doesn't tell us that, but we do see something happening, and that is he's remaining composed and on mission, and I think he's actually doing something quite strange because look at this situation they've drugged this woman out of bed, marched her up these steps. Have you ever looked at the temple, the steps like and keymat i mean I don't like to be drug out of bed, just you know for whatever reason, but, you know, she's in the, she is being shamed. The level of shame is off the charts, and this is an honor-shame culture. And she's being placed in the middle, front, and center of all these people. And what I see here happening is Jesus takes the eyes that are focused on this woman, and every single person was looking at this woman with absolute, like, oh, yeah, look at that woman. And he turns and he does something so strange that people have to turn and look at him. What is he doing? And I see an act of compassion. Jesus refused to play by their rules. They had set the whole thing up. And he, on purpose, does this weird thing. It was totally unexpected. It averts the eyes from her. And then he himself becomes, once again, the focus of attention. He's not going to play by their rules. And then he says this. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. This is one of the most genius answers. (laughs) I mean, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. What is he saying here? Well, notice what he doesn't weigh in on. He, he's not weighing in on whether she's guilty. She's already, that's already been established. He's not weighing in on capital punishment. Some of you are like, well, is he, is he for it or against it? He, he doesn't even bring it up. He completely doesn't go in there. He doesn't defend it, deny it. He's not into that debate. Um, he does not make a general statement about all judicial procedures in that we can never, ever have anybody be a judge unless they're a sinless person. These men would have laughed at that. We couldn't arrest serial killers. Jesus is not making some kind of general statement. What he's doing here is he's pointing out that there's something fishy here. There's something fishy in these people, these men coming together and dragging this woman before them. Um, number one, where in the world is the man? You know, last time I checked, to commit adultery takes two people, okay? <laughs> two people, and if they saw and saw it and they caught them in the act, where in the world is the man? And you know, the Bible does not mince words when it comes to partiality. There's several verses in the law of Moses that says that you, number one, the law itself says that you bring both the man and the woman. Number two, the law says, if you find a judge that is showing partiality and only punishing one person, take that person and kill them. Okay? So Jesus here is, Jesus here is he's on to their fishiness. So it looks like, There's partiality. It looks like there's entrapment, you know? Um, You know, the fact of the matter is, is that if you think about how odd this situation is, where is the man? Well, where is the man? I think, reasonably, I think that one possibility is, is that they were behind the whole thing, you know? Okay, hey, Joe, why don't, you know, we notice that you kind of have this relationship, you know, tonight, you know, uh, we're gonna bust in there. First thing in the morning, you know, after after that night, and we're going to grab this woman, and you just kind of slip out the back. In which case, they themselves are complicit in this immorality. And then uh, we also know in Jewish law that a credible witness cannot themselves be guilty of the same uh, sin or crime. And so um, we see this, uh, that Jesus here um, points to the fact that they are... Uh, disqualified. And this is what's profound. Jesus here is not saying, yeah, the law of Moses, you know, who cares? What Jesus is saying is, I do not deny the law of Moses, but by the law of Moses, I claim that you're not qualified to be witnesses. That's where Jesus is going. And so if any of you is also above the law of Moses, you have not never broken the law of Moses, go ahead. And by the way, we have to think about where they're at. They're in the temple, right? And what do you do when you go to the temple? You bring your sacrifice, your offering for your sin. So um, Jesus here says, uh, um, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Now there's something else going on here because it says after that, once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. And once more, Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. So here he's doing this, thing again, right? He was without sin. Let him cast the first stone. Woman comes in here. Let's put it all together. Comes in here. She's, in sh- she's just completely humiliated, shamed, does this weird thing. People are looking at him now. Then he was without sin. Let him cast the first stone. So now he put it back on them, right? He's pointing, he's pointing back on them. He's pointing the finger on them. And then he does this again. He goes back down to draw attention to himself. I, I don't know, I am deeply convinced that what Jesus is doing is not only did he direct the shame away from this woman, but now he directs the shame away from his enemies who are trying to get him in order to show mercy to them, to give them the space to process what he just said. You know, Paul says that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. And this might very well be one of the most merciful acts that Jesus ever does in the gospel, is that he would, even with his, these people are out to kill him. And he deflects the attention from them to give them the space to process. And they had to process this question. They're in the temple. The temple, as I said, was a place where you would come to offer sacrifices. They had offered sacrifices year after year after year in order to remember your own sin. And why does Jesus say this? He was without sin. He wants them to see their own motives. He wants them to see what's going on for them. I just finished teaching a graduate class in fashion theology, okay? It's a long story. But um, I happen to be an expert on the history of the catwalks of Alexander McQueen, all right? So this was one of my favorite shows. All right, you're like what? You guys are like, wow, he just turned a corner. Like, wow. Okay. Um, this is one of my favorite shows, um, and in this show, Alexander McQueen was just this amazing performance artist. Um, and in this show, he had these women inside this giant box, um, and all the lights are on, and these women like have their heads bandaged, and and they seem kind of like they're going more and more crazy as the show goes on. And Alexander McQueen, at one point, he had turned off the lights in the box and had the outside lights on, and suddenly the entire fashion media with all their cameras see nothing but their reflection. Do you see what you're doing to these women? Do you see how you're placing them with a gaze that is unbearable? And this is what I see Jesus doing. He who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. Jesus is pointing to their own motives, to their self-righteousness, to their indignation, to their snap judgment, to the fact that they want to cancel, to the fact that they know better, and they've gathered people together, and they're going to weigh in. They've become a herd. they become a mob. They've become a junta. They are going to weigh in, and they're going to cancel him, and Jesus wants them to see what's going on, and he does this mercifully. He does this mercifully. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one by one. The oldest first dropped the rock. Why? Because when you're older, you know more. No, because when you're older, you've had more room to fail. <laughs> it's really hard. When you're young, you're like, yeah, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm great. I'm amazing. When you're old, you're like, yeah, <laughs> I got a lot of weaknesses. And they had been at temple longer, and they knew. And then Jesus turns to this woman and Jesus was left alone with this woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Now, Josh has pointed this out, and I want to point it out again because it's a great point. It's always dangerous when God asks you a question. When Jesus asks questions, it's not because he doesn't have all the information, okay? What in the world is he doing here? Well, just think about this woman again. Think about like, what her day was like where she was ripped out of bed, probably half-dressed, marched up through there, disheveled, thrown in front of all these people. She is a pawn in their game. She's forced to stand before this crowd, and as she's walking up those those steps to the temple, undoubtedly, she had been there before. She's a Jewish woman, and every time she had gone up there and she had carried her offering in order to pay for her sins, in order to push her sins forward, but this time, she's like, I'm going to pay for my sins this time, and it's going to be my death. And we've never seen a stoning, but we can imagine it. A stoning was a horrible thing. To sit there and wait for people to find rocks and to have them lacerate your flesh until finally a big enough one comes and knocks you unconscious, and people keep throwing stones until you're completely gone. You can't, we can't even see any of them. And by the way, she's already completely gone because nobody can see who she really is. She's just a woman caught in adultery, that's all there is to her. So stoning's a very appropriate punishment for this woman because they've already stoned her in their hearts. And that's what happens when you get together as a mob that's gonna cancel, is you erase people, real people, people who are more complex than just simply the labels of moral indignation. And one by one, all of her accusers had filed out. And then Jesus says, Where did they go? And why does Jesus say this? I think a couple things are going on. I think number one, this woman's got PTSD. Like she just needs a moment to like come up for air and just like recognize that she's not about to die. She's trembling, she's shaking. And Jesus wants to give her a little space to begin the healing process. But I think he also stands up and asks this question because that would be the position where he now, in a very gentle way, is also mimicking that of the judge, mimicking that who could also be an accuser. And he wants her to know that he too does not condemn her. He's wanting it to sink in. That there's nothing you've done that that disqualifies you from my grace. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. These are probably two of the most powerful phrases in the Gospel of John. You know, John says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son in order that whoever might believe in him might have life. God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. This language of condemnation shows up in John. And the point is, is that Jesus did not come so that we might be condemned. He came that we might have another way out. How does he do this? how can he neither condemn nor condone? You know, it's interesting because uh, a lot of the, there's, this has been filmed so many times. People that produce films just love to you know, reenact this. Um, but there's a lot of people that love to lead out that little phrase, um, go and sin no more, You know, which would be a nice little formula for like, do what you want. <laughs> you know? But how does he do this? How can he be both someone who doesn't condemn and doesn't, someone who doesn't condone? Jesus could do that because he knew, he knew they were only yards away from where the animals were being sacrificed, the lambs were being sacrificed in order to roll forward the sin, in order to keep it pushed forward. And he knew that he himself would be the ultimate sacrifice in order for once and for all to deal with not just this woman's sin, but all of our sin. I don't condemn you because I will be condemned for you. I will take the rocks that ought to be thrown. They will hit me. I will take the spear that ought to be thrust in your side. It'll be thrust in my side. The thorns that ought to go down on your skull and crush you will come down on me. Sister, you're free. The Bible says, God took him who knew no sin, a perfect spotless lamb of God, and made him sin on our behalf, that we might experience the righteousness of God, the acceptance of God, the love of God. The Bible says there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It's because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that those of us who can't stand before a holy God, which is all of us, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of what Jesus has done, we can come before God and we can can be neither condemned nor condoned, but we can acknowledge in truth that we are sinners in need of God's grace. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by the way, the order is super important. Neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. That's a really important order. Because if it was reversed, go and sin no more and I won't condemn you, good luck on that one, right? That's the exact logic of Jesus' enemies that fill them with moral indignation and being unable to see that they themselves are also sinners in need of God's mercy, living by God's mercy. And by the way, This is a whole nother sermon, but this is the very epicenter of the ethic of the New Testament of what motivates you as a Christian. What motivates you is not to work as hard as you can so you won't be condemned. It's recognizing the grace and the mercy of God poured out on us who are deserving of condemnation, and yet Jesus took that for us. And then out of gratitude, we look at the righteous moral law of God, and we say, yes, Father, I want to please you. I want to live in a way that pleases you. So, where are you at this morning? I have to admit, when I was setting this text, I thought, man, I've been in both positions. Man, I've been that woman before where it's like, wow. I can remember times where I just thought, wow, what am I doing here in church? You know? And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're saying, like, wow, I'm bruised, I'm broken. I don't even, I shouldn't even be here. Have you failed? Are you shamed? Maybe you have PTSD, like you've just gone through a lot. Jesus wants to heal you. Jesus wants, if you are walking in here this morning and you just feel like you have been through a lot and you have, you've screwed things up. You screwed your life up. Jesus wants, he, has, he, wants he wants to tell you, I don't condemn you come to me. He wants to meet with you. If that's you this morning, you're thinking, I I can't meet with him. I can't. You know what? He died for you. That's the whole point is he he wants to meet you this morning, and he wants you to come into his presence and to feel his love and embrace and know that nothing you've done can separate you from the love of God. Maybe you're somebody that has a lot of rocks in your pocket this morning. Maybe you have an alternative personality when you get online. And if we all knew the kind of person you are and the kind of uh, m- mob you become a part of, maybe, maybe you've been sucked into the mob in the office where there's going to be a pressure we're going to put on somebody and, y- and you didn't have the courage to stand up. John Chrysostom, one of my favorite historic preachers, when he was tempted to say something negative about somebody, he would always pause and he would touch with his right finger the inside of his left hand. That was his way of saying, remember, he died for you. Who is it that you're angry with? Who is it that you look at and you just think, I I just want to cancel them. I just wish they weren't in my life. I would love to get rid of that person or this group or... you know, the sacrifice of Jesus is the only way we're going to get through the situation we're in. And God help us if we become a part of the herd. God protect us from that. And the only way we can be protected from that is when we see what he's done for us. And that registers at a deep level.